Webster's Dictionary defines the word mentor as a trusted counselor or guide, tutor or coach. My guest this episode refuses to impute that definition upon himself. And that's exactly why I wanted to have him on the Sports Mentoring Project. The iconic and indelible Doc Emmerich. He spent 50 years calling play-by-play. He's called 45 Stanley Cup playoff game sevens, 19 outdoor NHL games, and six Winter Olympics. He's earned the Lester Patrick Award, the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award, the Vin Scully Lifetime Achievement Award. He's a member of seven Halls of Fame. And of course, for 21 years, he was the voice of your New Jersey Devils. 28 years ago, I had a chance encounter with Doc in the caverns of a dark hockey arena. He gave me the gift of time. And since then, I've considered him what I call a mentor from afar. But I've come to learn that he just has that effect on people. Over the years, with great kindness and humility, Doc's provided more than 1,200 aspiring broadcasters free evaluations on their play-by-play demos. One of my listeners pointed out that my podcasts were missing something very, very important. What's in it for the listeners? So here it is. In this episode, you'll learn that it's good to take time, but it's even better to give it. Welcome to the Sports Mentoring Project and my latest guest, Doc Emmerich. Thank you so much for joining me. I am uh, thrilled to be here, and of course, I'm curious about all the footballs around you, but we'll get to that later, perhaps. We sure will. We sure will. I want to start where we first met, and it was back in 1993. I was an intern with the Washington Capitals, and it was in the bowels of the old Cap Center in Landover, Maryland. I was running copies of game notes to the training rooms. You had set up camp outside the player dressing rooms, and I vividly recall you gleefully leaning back on a stacked hardwood basketball floor that was to be stalled later that night after a Caps game. And as the superstars from both clubs passed by, your eyes and ears were trained elsewhere. They seemed to be affixed to the men and women working behind the scenes like me. Why? Well, uh Without you guys, there wouldn't be a game that night. I realize the players are a part of the action that people are paying the price of admission to, but I was always interested in what else was going on the day of a game. I tended to arrive, John, early and stay all afternoon, Uh, and I often picked up bits of information that way from folks like yourselves, from trainers. Uh, Broadcasters are the conduit between players and organizations and the fans, And it's amazing what harmless but interesting bits of information that can be picked up if you're just around during the course of a day. So that was the reason that I was always watching and and listening to what else happened to be going on. So two years later, in 1995, I dropped out of the University of Maryland to chase my dream of becoming a PR director for an expansion AHL team in Baltimore. And the team, simply put, was unsuccessful. We had struggled to connect with the community, and we couldn't even give tickets away. Uh, Ownership changed hands. We laid off employees. And one hot summer day, I can remember vividly, the circus was in town. 
And our offices were right above the bay in which the animals were kept. So as the smells were wafting through the front office, I began to question my choice of entering into dropping out of school and and entering into the workforce. And all of a sudden the phone rings and it's you on the other end and you're calling to do your homework, which you are notorious for doing. And uh, you asked about a few up and coming players. And you recounted our conversation a couple of years earlier. You'd remembered me. And, and that's why I sort of adopted you as what I call a mentor from afar. Someone I knew, but somebody I didn't speak to regularly. So Interesting. Some, someone I always felt that, that would help me if I reached out. So I'll, I'll ask you this. Are you aware of this dynamic you have with people or the impact you left with them, even though if it was a, just a small period of time that you spent with them? I don't. No, I, I, I don't think so. Sometimes I, I certainly do remember people, but in terms of the effect that I have, no, unless someone like yourself reminds me, and of course it makes you feel good to hear a reminder like that, but I always found my job so much fun that, uh, that calling to find out about future Washington Capitals in Baltimore, and uh, there, of course, Barry Trotz uh, was coaching in Baltimore at one time when they were the Skip Jacks, and Kenny Albert was one of their announcers at one time, and there were a lot of people who came through Baltimore. But uh, it was also, as you mentioned, it was a difficult sell uh, at different times there, too. Baltimore had quite a history in professional sports and, and the NBA in its early years too. But um, uh, no, I, I, I don't know in answer to your question that I, I had an effect unless someone mentioned it to me. Uh, I was just curious and I was just glad to be around people. Um, that was, I guess, the main reason that I would ask questions or, or uh, be nice to people. I think people, uh, uh, people were nice to me. And so I always found it very easy to return that. So many talented people, both on and off the ice, came through Baltimore. I was actually there when it was the farm team of the then named Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. Uh-huh. But I knew all my predecessors when they were affiliated with the Caps. And as you pointed out, there were no shortage of stories that came out of Baltimore. But I wanted to ask you today, people in positions of power have one thing in common. They have limited time to spare. And so that's why we continue to sort of hear about the value of the elevator pitch. And as someone who's called play by play for the fastest game on earth, do you have advice for people in terms of succinctly telling their story and selling themselves or selling their ideas when they have a finite period of time bending someone's ear? Well, here was some advice that I got uh, when uh, I was approaching an interview with the future president of the NHL, the last president of the NHL named Gil Stein, when he was the president of the Flyers and a new farm team in the American Hockey League, an expansion team, very much like yours in, in Baltimore, in Portland, Maine. And I was advised uh, before I went in to have as much prepared that I could leave with him because we were allowed 15 minutes to talk about ourselves. And that's long by today's standards. This was 1977. 
so it was a long period of time to, to spend with someone of Gill's importance. And so I left quite a bit of material with him uh, about what I would do if I got the job in communications for the team, what I would do if I was the broadcaster, et cetera. And I had that in writing and I had it in a, in a three uh, folder and a three pocketed folder that I, that I left with him that he could look at at his leisure. But I think the other thing too is because we are in such an abbreviated society with, uh, with attention spans that are only allowed to be so long that fine tuning a message and practicing it in front of a mirror is what a lot of salesmen do and it's not a bad plan. And look directly into the mirror and maintain that eye contact just as you would if you are getting that elevator opportunity or if you were sitting across from someone. I'm occasionally asked uh, when you wind up with that rare chance to sit across the table from someone in an interview, what do you do then? Well, this is advice and it's from an old person. I realize I'm in my seventies, but I think some things do go back across the eras and still work. Number one, a firm handshake. Number two, eye contact. Number three, even though we love our portable devices, either leave it somewhere like uh, hidden in your car or uh, certainly turn it off before you go in. Even if the person doing the interview is playing around and preoccupied with his, he's in charge of the interview. Don't be preoccupied with yours. Be focused on everything that is going on there. And then when you get an opportunity, make sure that in my mind, that you show that person what it is that is going to make his life better because of your being there. Not so much what you want out of the position, but what they will benefit by when they bring you aboard. And then when you get the job and it's your earliest days there, one thing that is rarely ever said is that at the end of those first couple of work days, before you leave, even though you may be tired, go to your supervisor and say, is there anything else that needs to be done today before I go? Nobody does that. Nope. Be the one that does that. And word gets around among supervisors that this person is a 110 percenter. Not everybody is. Not everybody was in my time. Not everybody was in yours and not everybody is today. So unsolicited, I just sort of spun off, but that's my advice. And I also overdress for the occasion. I mean, you can always dress down. You can always take your tie off if you're a guy or you can always, uh, you can always uh, lighten it up a little bit, but at least you are showing if you're appearing there that you believe this is a profession and so you're dressing as a profession for the occasion, especially if it's in the communications business. And then if you realize everybody else is pretty relaxed there, maybe you can get relaxed too. But at least you're there and prepared to have stated that this is a profession. For those of you listening to the audio, it's, it's worth noting that Doc is wearing a tie and is showing me that respect. I am not, and I, I, I feel... Guilty. No, no, no. It's okay for you. It's fine. Uh, I, I have several others to do today and it's, it's all fine and it's no reflection on you. It's just, I always try to do this whenever I'm being shown just because it's, 
that's the way I'm, I'm old. Well, <laughs> I, I consider myself old as well. And I, and I think that with, with age comes wisdom, obviously. And, and here's a piece of wisdom that I picked up that I think is in the same spirit of what you just shared, which is everything communicates the way you look, what you say, how you carry yourself, how you follow up your handshake, as you pointed out. Uh, the devices, whether you're giving someone your attention or not. I couldn't agree more, Doc, that that is a lost art. And it's one that couldn't be more important for all people today, let alone young men and women trying to break into sports. I want to shift gears and talk to you about a moment in time in your career. On March 21st, 2018, the Bruins were visiting the Blues and NBC had the game. And your two partners and I think they'd say this, mentees of yours, Eddie Olchek and Pierre Maguire, were back to work full-time and cancer-free. And like Pierre, with whom I've already recorded an episode of the Sports Mentoring Project, you were too diagnosed with stage one prostate cancer only years earlier. Can you take me back to that moment? What was going through your mind? I had a very good general practitioner uh, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, named Warren Wolf, who was suspicious of my family's history. And uh, he would, he, uh, in doing the digital check, felt something unusual. And he said, I want you to go have it checked. And so there was an ultrasound done and it was fine. And so six months later, same thing. And he said, I want you to go to a different lab this time. And we were about to move from Cherry Hill, New Jersey to Hershey, Pennsylvania, just because we like small towns. It was 100 miles away. And I thought, you know, I need to get on with uh, Hershey Medical Center anyway, since we're going to be living here. So I went there and they said, you came 100 miles for this test. So if you did that, we'll do the ultrasound like you want. But why don't we do a biopsy? It doesn't hurt. And the ultrasound was fine. And the biopsy showed cancer. And I was in Montreal with the Philadelphia Flyers the night before a game and the phone rang and it was the person at Hershey Medical Center. And he said, um, here's the news. And uh, so he laid it out for me and uh, I hung up the phone and I immediately prayed, dear God, get me through this. And my partner, Bill Clement, was the first person that I talked to about it um, because you don't phone your wife with news like that, you sit down next to her and I wasn't going to get home until Sunday. This was Friday afternoon. And so we got on the phone with Philadelphia Flyers who had uh, great contacts with Hahnemann Hospital and eventually contacts with Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And a surgeon named Charles Brendler took care of my problem in 1991. And before I was dismissed after 16 days, Pierre only spent one uh, because that's the progress that we've made. Yes. I asked Dr. Charles Brendler, I said, what could you have done for me 10 years ago? That would have been 1981. And he said, not nearly as much. And that uh, just shows how far we have come during that time. But of course it's scary. And uh, I wanted to have it removed right away. And uh, he was booked up and he said, those well, are slow moving cancer, so don't worry. And okay, I won't worry. And it was done uh, two and a half months later. And uh, so I'm cancer free for 30 years. What was it like sitting with your wife, Joyce, on that Sunday when we returned home? Well, you know, how do you start a conversation like that? You don't want to panic 
them. And uh, Joyce is a very strong person. Anyone that spends so much time alone as she's had to over all those years has to be. And I said, I'm going to need you to be a rock here because this is, this is, uh, this is the news that I got. She knew that I'd had the test. And so um, things happened very quickly with the flyers uh, the next day, which was Monday. And uh, I said, we have an appointment at Hahnemann Hospital tomorrow morning. And I explained. And so we had a game plan right away. And within two days, we were in Baltimore to have our initial meeting with Dr. Bren Lehrer. So we were, we were as confident as anyone who has cancer can be. We were assured. But you don't wait that long a time and not have some fears. That's for sure. 17 years later, on a cold March day in St. Louis, you have two partners that are returning full-time to the telecast and Eddie Olchek and Pierre Maguire, and they're cancer-free. What was that moment like going back on the airwaves with your colleagues and friends? Pierre's was very much like mine. Um, it was, uh, was low-key until uh, after his surgery had taken place. And he, he was uh, doing the treadmill three miles, uh, probably two or three days uh, after because he's a former athlete and he does all that stuff. Eddie had colon cancer and had to go through 12 rounds of chemo. Little different. His was very public. He came back and worked every other week while he was going through the tests. And uh, my hat was off to both of them because of what they weathered and what they went through because I remember I was probably four weeks off of work after I had had my surgery. And Pierre was, I think, only a couple. Uh, but Eddie worked during the time. It was a two-week uh, break between each round of his chemo. And the second week, he was feeling pretty good, so he worked. And it was, uh, it was a phenomenal display on both their parts. But Eddie had a lot more to suffer with all of the chemotherapy. And I often told him that you are making a mark for anyone who does or whose family member has this in the future because they will say, Eddie Olchek had this and he got through the chemotherapy and maybe I can too. And he did some work and he was upright. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I can't, but at least I've got somebody that I can look to who has done this before and has been there before. And Eddie has counseled so many people since that time who have had colon cancer themselves. He's a great soul. There's just no two ways about it. It's such an uplifting story because I think sports in many ways is about lifting other people up when they've struggled or when they've suffered. And uh, I think hockey is kind of unique because it's synonymous with lifting up something called the Stanley Cup. And it's more than just a famous trophy in sports or the most famous trophy in sports. It's really a symbol of achievement and sacrifices. And in many cases, it marks the end of these long and winding journeys from all over North America and Europe and, and, and elsewhere that were filled individually by the players from with hardship and unpredictability. And when they see that Stanley Cup for the first time, they each have such unique feelings. What do you feel when you see the Stanley Cup? Well, how good it looks because it's always polished up high and it's always brought out by two men who wear gloves on their hands. 
And I constantly will give Eddie Olchek a hard time because in 94, when the Rangers won it, that wasn't the case. And it got banged up pretty good by those guys. And so the commissioner said, we will always have an attendant with the cup from here on out. And it was uh, Lou Lamorello, who was general manager of New Jersey in 95, who determined that everybody who is on the team will have a day with the cup. Others had had it before, but not entire teams. And that meant Sergei Breland in Russia. Right. Uh, it was going to go around the world. And, and now it, of course, is a tradition that everyone gets it. But I think the significance to me is not only the cost of doing it, because uh, it's, it's eight weeks. And last year it was 10. But normally it's eight weeks of playing about every other day. And if you end a series early, you really get a break that you need because you're black and blue and you suffer an awful lot to go for the Stanley Cup. And then at the end, if you are in fact the lucky team that wins it and it's a battle of attrition, you get the name that your parents gave you engraved on it, letter by letter. And because in so many of these stories of hardship that you mentioned, John, the parents were there and were taking you to those six o'clock or 5.30 in the morning uh, uh, youth hockey practices because that was the only ice time that you could get. And so you had to be there for it at that time. Uh, and the coffee was at the bottom of the urn and it was kind of rancid by that time for your parents, but those were all a part of, and the equipment didn't smell too good. Uh, when it was all wet. I mean, these are all of the things that that have been sacrificed for you. And now you have the Stanley Cup and your name goes on it. And what an amount of pride that is. And uh, they've been putting names on it for almost 90 years now, um, all the way back to almost the, the beginning of the history of uh, the NHL. If I, have the, if I have the numbers right, I don't have them in front of me. Maybe it goes even further back than that. When I see the Stanley Cup, I, I think about all those things you just said, but also the number of mentors that are listed on that cup oh, whose names mm -hmm. are forever inscribed. And I believe that mentorship is about helping people remove barriers for their success. Was there a time in, in your life where a mentor did that for you? Almost every job I got, there were not only there was not only one mentor, there were probably five. Uh, when I got my first job in professional hockey 47 years ago in Port Huron, Michigan at 160 a week, a price that I negotiated, uh, there were several people that had encouraged me along the way because I had wanted to do the job since I was 14. And I got the first job when I was 27. So there were people like Bob Chase in Fort Wayne, who was the announcer there that I grew up listening to and I made contact with when I was a senior in college. And of course, you know, you, you, you uh, are, are uh, conning people. It's not a con because it's true. You, you're going to write a term paper about sports casting. And so that gets you a wedge so that you can maybe get some time with one of your idols. And I got 15 minutes, uh, maybe 20 with Bob Chase to do an interview with him that I still have. And um, as a result, we became lifelong friends. He was a mentor. When I moved from Port Huron to Maine, uh, there were several people that encouraged me, and not only that, gave me the advice that I just passed along earlier to you about how to be in an interview. 
And Gil Stein uh, hired me out of 40 candidates. He hired me to do that job. And then I was promoted to Philadelphia from within the Flyers organization. And uh, that gave me my first chance 40 years ago to do National Hockey League games. So there are so many people along the way that are your mentors. And if you name one, you leave out a hundred. It's just, it's, it's fantastic how many people as you look back that really helped you and were your mentors, even though there was an official title that gave them that. I am so glad you mentioned and we're comfortable mentioning Bob Chase, who was the radio broadcaster for the Fort Wayne Comets for 63 years. And I think <laughs> it's incredible. And I think it's a lot of bus rides. It sure is. And a lot of a lot of rancid coffee, as you pointed out. And <laughs> not to get too technical, but a little history lesson that I picked up along the way was that what was special about the Comets and Bob's voice was that on a clear night, you could seemingly hear his voice on WoWo radio for about a thousand miles, maybe more, because that station had this massive signal that was the beneficiary of really this, this protection from other interference from other radio stations. And I thought, I thought that was pretty fascinating that he had that kind of reach with his voice for, with such incredible longevity. And for almost 50 years, you've had a similar reach and with your uh, voice and longevity while you put down the headset as a play-by-play -play broadcaster for the NHL and NBC, you are continuing on doing video essays for NBC Sports, which we're enjoying. And I know you have a lot of work ahead of you. And it seems to me, Doc, that this is something that really quote unquote, fills your bucket. And you've spent so much time filling other people's buckets, not just with the mentorship, which I know is some, the, the subject of this podcast, but also with, with your calls. And what do you do now to fill people's buckets? And how did Joyce and the dogs and the horses help <laughs> fill yours? Well, by being the dogs are loyal and, and Joyce is incredibly loyal. And the horses, um, they're, they're very loyal as long as you keep giving them oats and hay. <laughs> and then they, they sort of look the other way if you don't. Well, we've never not done it. So as a result, why uh, uh, they're loyal too. Uh, creatures have always been special in both of our lives from the time we were little kids. Uh, Joyce was raised around uh, cats and dogs and so was I. And so we've always had that additional element in our life. And I think some people don't have that and get along just fine, but we've needed creatures all of our lives to sort of add an extra dimension to, uh, to our appreciation of, of uh, God's great earth. And so that's, uh, that's always been special to us. But uh, it's, it's a great supplement to other facets of our life. We enjoy um, our our motor home in the summertime. And we also enjoy the contact that we have with family. Uh, my family's uh, one state away. Her family is very close here where we live. And mind you, there are not many members of it left, but what members we have, we stay in close touch with. And in addition, um, the the essays that you mentioned keep me in touch with some of the people at NBC. And also, uh, I am able to 
listen to some of the upcoming uh, broadcasters because I have an open uh, an open invitation to people to send me their work uh, for one free bit of advice if they want to hear one person's opinion. People were very good to me when I was coming up in telling me what they thought. And so I like to do the same thing. I get behind at this time of year. I normally reserve August for listening and responding, but last August was filled with playoff games. So I got behind and I still have four or five from last summer that I haven't gotten to yet because of other obligations, but I am getting there and I've assured the people that uh, have sent them to me that I will get there and review them and let them know what I think. And occasionally uh, I do hear back from some of those people that they, um, they want advice on uh, contacts that they have made and jobs that they're hoping for, or they've gotten a job in, in hockey in particular, or they have lost a job in hockey and what do we do next? Things like that. Uh, I'm flattered that they want my opinion about that in addition to of their work. Uh, but I, I, I just don't know how much help I am. But one person's opinion is one person's opinion. And if they value that, then I'm flattered. You referenced the footballs behind me. And uh, in addition to being a big fan, I, I worked in football for quite some time, but I also worked in hockey for quite some time. And that is my spirit animal. And if you looked around my house, you'd find plenty of hockey gear and sticks and pucks and, and things like that. And I do want to talk about the New Jersey Devils my team. <laughs> More importantly, your team, what role did the Devils play in your life? Well, I got lucky in that I was not renewed in Philadelphia. I was unaware that that was happening in 1993, uh, but a couple of months after my contract expired, uh, uh, my representative was continually contacting the Flyers and and as it turned out, they didn't have plans to renew me, but I wasn't aware of that. And fortunately for me, uh, Sports Channel New York had the rights to the New Jersey Devils. A tremendous announcer named Gary Thorne was very much involved with ESPN and uh, had also a talent for doing baseball and was, was very busy. And so they needed someone, um, and Lou Lamorello was was very for, uh, was foremost in, uh, in having me uh, come to New Jersey and Sports Channel New York uh, encouraged me to come along. And so the timing was remarkable for me because all of a sudden I didn't realize it, but I was out of work. And all of those, all of those uh, troubled waters have been healed in Philadelphia, by the way, you should know. Uh, time passes and you don't hold grudges like that. But um, the, I was in shock for a while, but um, this worked out wonderfully well. I showed up at training camp in the fall of 93, and I was lucky because Jacques Lemaire showed up to coach. Larry Robinson showed up to be an assistant coach. The third day of training camp, Ken Danico told me he had learned more about playing defense in three days than he had in all of the prior years of his career. And a goalie who had been in Utica the previous year, who had this one curling stripe down the front of his mask with a tail on it, but no logo because he didn't want to presume he was going to make the team named Marty Brodeur, uh, made the team 
as another goaltender with Chris Terreri. The Devils won the first seven games out of the blocks. Now, I had just come from Philadelphia where they missed the playoffs for the last five years, uh, despite having Eric Lindros in the lineup. And so this was, this was new territory to me. And it was the first of 18 consecutive years there. So I just lucked out. I got there at the right time, got to witness a lot of success. Two years later, they won a championship. Five years later, they won another. Three years later, they won another. And only until I turned 65 uh, and was doing 120 games a year, counting network games, did I call Lou Lamorello and say, Lou, you always said before you make any important decision, look in the mirror and look at your birth certificate. I have done both. And I am sorry to tell you that I'm going to have to peel back the amount of work that I do and just work for NBC. And so as much as I regretted missing out on all the devil's excitement, I really did need to peel back the amount of work I was doing. And that was my stretch with the devil's I was just lucky. My contract ran out. It wasn't renewed. And they came to my rescue. Uh, I was available at a time that they wanted someone to be able to do all their games. So there it was. Was that hard for you to have that conversation with Lou? Yes, it was because uh, he had been there uh, for me as Sports Channel New York had been at a difficult time in my life. It worked for both of us, but just because of that doesn't mean that I wasn't grateful. And I was, it was not, no, it was not an easy conversation, nor was it easy to call at that time, Madison Square Garden Network and uh, pass along the same bit of news. But I felt that this was something I needed to do, not my representative, um, because it was personal. They had been so good to me, it needed to be, it needed to be conveyed by me. The NHL today, where does the game have the biggest opportunity and what's the most pressing issue to address for the health and prosperity of the sport in the future? Well, I think that probably uh, uh, I am not the greatest authority on this because Zoom is about as sophisticated as I get, but it is apparent that there is one generation and perhaps two generations that are very accustomed to streaming now. Uh, I am still a conventional sit in front of the television screen kind of guy. But fortunately, those making various decisions at our network and other networks are, are much more progressive than that. And so they understand that the way to convey this game to other people who are not paying the price of admission, in many cases, because in some states they still can't. As of a week ago, I believe there were 13 of the 31 franchises that had fans coming through the turnstiles. And I don't believe any that were, that were able to sell uh, anything more than a quarter of the seats. Uh, and so we, you know, we, we don't have a full fan population. And so we're relying heavily on, on television and radio broadcasts and not necessarily terrestrial radio to get the word out. But the, there has been tremendous. Uh, there have been tremendous steps taken forward for the safety of players in terms of concussions and various protocols to protect them from COVID and all, all of these other steps. It is still a collision sport. It is still a sport that allows spontaneous fighting, 
And I don't think that should be taken out of it. I think gradually it'll work its way out of it, but I don't think it should be taken out of it because it still can change the course of a game as we have seen this season. And so it is a difficult road for the league to walk to have a game that is rough like NFL, that does have collisions, but also has to make sure that it walks that line of protecting its players. And so I would be the last guy to try to mandate where those lines need to be drawn. There are other people that do that, but I enjoy the game just as much now as I did when I first watched it. And when I first broke in, started broadcasting it 40 years ago, I am just glad that people are being vigilant. And I'm also glad that people are being protected as best they can, given the nature of the sport. We can't have flag football in the NFL, and we can't have no-touch hockey. There is going to be carnage. It's the nature of our sport. There's going to be carnage in the playoffs, too. But the sport is wonderful. It's faster than ever. And we are like the 500-mile race. When I was uh, in high school decades ago, I went to the Oval in Indianapolis. And I believe on bump-off day, the speed that got in was in the high 140s. <laughs> Now it's over 200 and the oval is still two and a half miles. And our rink is 200 by 85. We have bigger, stronger, faster guys and the walls are still there. So there are gonna be collisions and there are gonna be injuries. That's just the nature of the beast. That's so well put and including the context about other sports is so incredibly important. I'm so glad you did that. And I'm so incredibly humbled that you would take your time to talk to me on the sports mentoring. Project. Are you kidding? No, this and is fun. I'm so grateful. I do. Have Am I going to learn question. about the footballs? <laughs> yes, we were going to learn about the footballs. Um, but I, I, I want to close with one uh, seemingly an orthodox question. Ernest Hemingway once bet a man in a bar that he could write a story in just six words and he won the bet by writing these six words on a napkin for sale baby shoes never worn and you are such an amazing storyteller so i'm gonna ask you to do this can you please leave my listeners with a six word story about your life luckiest man who could not skate is that six? It sure is. It sure, okay, it sure that's is. It. Wow. And, <laughs> and for our listeners, he did that in the spot. And that's why he's one of the, the greatest in the game and in all of sports. Doc Emmerich, I'm indebted to you. Thank you so much. And I wish you nothing but health, happiness, and success as you continue to pursue your dreams and work with the NHL and NBC. Thank you, John, so much. And thank you for the project that you are on. It will do nothing but help other people, including your guests, as I have found out today, to uh, further focus on what makes them better people and, and, and drives them on to improve themselves. So good job on your part. Thank you. Thank you, Doc. Have a wonderful day. Bye Thanks. now.